Louise Dutoit has taught philosophy since 1997, first at the University of Johannesburg and currently at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. She's trained in European continental philosophy and employs feminist phenomenology and legal philosophy for thinking about issues of social and ecological justice in South Africa and elsewhere. She's published widely in these fields, and her current research focuses on a better understanding of the extremely high levels of sexual violence currently occurring in South Africa and state government and other official responses to it. In what follows, I speak with Louise on her project about Christianity and violence in South Africa. So Louise, tell me a bit about your work uh, in, in philosophy and where you're teaching in South Africa. Hmm. Okay, so I've, I'm trained in philosophy and um, from, an, from an early stage on in my career, I thought that philosophy must, um, if it's any good, it must be able to help us to understand sexual violence. So there's a lot of empirical work, a lot of research on the numbers and so on, but my interest has been to make sense of it, to understand the meanings of these acts for the perpetrators and for the victims of it. Mm. Um, to see what role it plays in the larger context of the country post-apartheid. Um, so that's what I've been busy with. And not long before I came to CTI, I realized that it's very important to place it historically also, to look at what, what was the hang-up, what was the preoccupation of the colonial regime with, with people's sexuality. Um, and... Yeah, so I started to read quite widely once I got here and I discovered how difficult historical research was. Mm. And then I had to, that you always have this tightrope between large explanatory narratives, sort of um, meta-narratives, <coughs> um, historical ones, and then very specific encounters, such as this one. Um, it's actually two hearings, two presbytery hearings that I've been looking at in the context of the Scottish missions in Crossa land. Yeah, so to, to see what the text can yield in terms of understanding how colonial identities were, were contested, were worked out in that encounter, that, that is proven to be very interesting. Very interesting. Is that, so as I've heard you say before, you're wanting to move beyond just looking at the, the apartheid period mm. and to see how this colonial period... So are you wanting to explore how even problems today can be traced to that colonial period? Is exactly. that what you, how you'd put yeah. it? Yeah. Sorry, I should have made that clearer. That's exactly the thing, is to see... But it's, it's, you know, it's also, um, I think, many discussions around um, the colony and decolonization tend to fall into these very stark binaries of the oppressors and the oppressed and you know all guilt on the one side all innocence on the other and mm. i think the moment you start to work with the historical material you see how it's much more complicated than that um, so not only in the way in which the sexuality of the colonized was controlled and policed by the colonial system that's that's a large part of what i'm interested in but also in how this was resisted in sometimes and the resistance to it also sometimes took forms that were not good ultimately for how we have shaped a sexual pol politics post-apartheid. So I'm looking at the way in which both the colonization and the liberation had their own logics of 
sexual politics and actually added up to a double, that's, that's sort of the claim I'm trying to make, added up to a double disenfranchisement of women in the control of their own sexuality. Tell, tell me a bit more about about South Africa for, for people who might not know so much about mm-hmm. the history there or even about just kind of the lay of the land as it is now and how your work kind of is a way to engage that context. Mm. So um, people will probably know that we've had um, an extended sort of colonial period. So um, most African states started to become independent from 1960 onwards. And um, in South Africa in 1948, the Afrikaner grouping took over government (coughs) and developed the apartheid system, which was a late form of colonial rule and extended um, into the 90s of the 20th century. So it's just in, in a sense, you could say it was one of the longest lasting colonial situations. Um, and then the world um, took notice of us and sort of um, took note of our transition. So it was politically, an in, it was a very interesting political transition in the sense that um, although preceded by quite a lot of um, violence, the transition itself was fairly nonviolent and amicable and constructive, and it led to a new constitution and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So in the 1990s, South Africa was in a very good place and we thought that we were also treated as having a kind of a model for peacemaking and reconciliation that could be exported to the rest of the world. But then I think from um, into into the 21st century, um, things started to unravel quite a bit in South Africa. But already in the middle to the later 1990s, we started to realize that there was a huge problem around sexual violence and that it was the one form of extreme interpersonal violence that was not diminishing, that was not coming down. Almost all the other crimes that one could say is related to a turbulent phase in a country's life started to come down. And so you could say society was normalizing, except this one. So that raised a lot of questions for South African scholars um, and questions about how to engage that. And it was from the start, I think, was the discourse stamped by especially President Mbeki's time. He was ex- he, he um, responded very negatively to the attempt of people to address it. Um, because he racialized the debate or he immediately understood any concern expressed around sexual violence as a racist comment, a racist attitude. And, uh, and that, you know, it makes it a fraught context in which to make a contribution <laughs> as a white person also, especially. But at the same time, I think what it tells us is that we need a much more clear understanding of where we're coming from with this and why it is such a sensitive thing and what exactly was the way in which colonial racism framed black people's sexuality as subhuman and degraded them in that way. That whole thing must be placed squarely on the table before we can move forward. So the the intersection of race and sex um, is a very tricky thing. The other thing to throw in the mix is religion. 
-hmm. And I'd be interested if you have much to say about how that interfaces with these two, these various areas. You've got race, colonialism, sexual violence, and Mm -hmm. also the question of religion and violence. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah, how does that work? So in my case, I'm not looking as much as some of the other scholars directly at religious violence or religiously motivated violence, but I am looking at how the missions influenced this whole topic of sexuality in the colony. And it was interesting for me to find out that, yes, the churches were preoccupied with the sexuality of the colonized, but also the state bureaucracies and the companies. (coughs) So all three colonizing uh, bodies, you could say, or jurisdictions, were interested in controlling the sexuality of the colonized. And I've been thinking maybe that's even a um, the colonial history of the European powers may be directly fed into what Foucault later calls biopower, you know, the, the attempt to control a large population through a minority um, rule um, and then to do it through sexual control, um, to problematize the biology, the bodies and the reproductive bodies, especially of the people that you try to control. Um, so so the missions come into that picture, um, sometimes with interests that overlap and sometimes with interests that, interests that collide with the other colonial bodies. So I think it is true that the the British missions, for instance, in South Africa, especially in the early 19th century, they had quite an enlightened or a humane understanding. And they really thought that if a person became converted, that also means they are now civilized. And that also means they are now equal to the colonizers and they should, in principle, get full citizenship. But that changed during the course of the 19th century and with the rise of scientific racism and with much more negative understandings of black sexuality. So, yeah, there were all these tensions. Nothing nothing stood still. Nothing was just one way. Um, you see con- contesting voices and impulses also within the missions. Um, but so, so Christianity definitely played a role in the precise way in which... <coughs> Um, sexuality of the indigenous people was viewed and that became the prime marker of conversion (laughs) if you change your sexual behavior that was for them the indication that you had really converted and so so you can also then understand why they were constantly preoccupied with the sexual behavior of their converts Um, and of course they came with very different um, socio-sexual organization. Um, It was all centered on uh, monogamy, a monogamous marriage, um, and any sexual activity outside of that was taboo and threatening and perverse, and they called it adultery. Whereas the Kosa people in this specific example had a very different organization of sexual activity, which made sense to them in a very different worldview. And so these two clashed, but it was not even considered as a clash, really, by the conquerors. You know, they just saw deprivation and perversion and, you know, so, so, so one system into which they fit everything. So that's, that's sort of the historical thing. Um, I wasn't so aware of it before, but since participating in the CTI program, I've become really convinced that the churches as powerful institutions um, can make or break our response to sexual violence. 
And it's true of South Africa too. If they're not going to be on board with that, because the churches are still so powerful, um, especially Christianity is very powerful in South Africa. Most South Africans, by far the majority, are Christian and belong to churches. And if they're not going to get on board with this and also use their theology and their preaching to address sexual violence, and, and we know how difficult it is for most traditional churches because they are themselves so pa patriarchal, um, then we're probably fighting a losing battle. What has been your the, the response you've gotten from your work you know, in, in this topic over the, over the recent years in South Africa? Um, yeah, so, so I, I actually quite get asked um, quite a bit by church groups to speak, to speak on this topic. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And um, Do you accept? <laughs> yeah. It depends on which group and so on. So, so with some churches I've said I have to start the conversation from scratch every time I get there, you huh. know, that there isn't any growth or learning from their side. Um, and the, I, f I find a lot of resistance. Um, I remember speaking to a group once where the response was, um, but you want to deprive us completely of our masculinity. <laughs> you know, what is, you can't expect of us to become feminine. Um, <laughs> so it's an interesting thing because you want to address core values and you actually want people to embrace more feminine values. Um, but where does that leave men who have grown up in very traditional understandings of what masculinity means, you know, so... Yeah, so I think in the churches also we need to talk talk much more about um, gender roles, gender identities. I suppose another question I would ask is just y you started touching on this, but how you know, how is interaction with the other other scholars in the CTI program has that influenced you know where you're going with this going forward with your project? Yeah, so as I said, um, I'm much more under the impression because of David's work and Lisa's work of the role of churches and how when the churches do not play their role, you sort of, you can't make much progress because it has to come from the churches. And for f uh, the churches also have to do introspection and look at their own complicity and their own, you know, the, the abuses going on within their own institutions. So it's a huge thing to ask, but but I think it's indispensable. But then I was really inspired by Wolfgang's Schirardian frame <laughs> for thinking about violence. So his emphasis on how violence is basically imitative and reciprocal, you know, and how violence can escalate and the cause of, cause of the violence is completely forgotten in the process. Um, and it becomes a violence for the sake of violence and it becomes a performance, a one-upmanship and so on. So I think um, that has changed my thinking around how, s how sh we should probably more sociologically look at sexual violence in South Africa to start to see it as a form of communication, as a form of, it's almost a language game. You know, it becomes a preferred way of expressing certain values in certain suburbs, villages, towns, and it catches on, you know, it's almost, um, I think it one kind of violence begets more of itself because people imitate it and there's an escalation around that and that becomes 
symbolically valuable and symbolically powerful to engage in that game. <coughs> so, so I think we must probably look more closely at specific contexts, such as Predastorp, for instance, which is one town where there was a very spectacular rape and murder of a young girl by a group of guys who were her friends, supposedly. And then once that came to the surface, a lot of other cases popped up and we started to see, but why this town <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in the Southern Cape? Wh why? You know, so, so, so this idea that it's imitative, that we tend to mimic each other's violence and that they are also um, spirals of violence. I think that needs to be better investigated. You mentioned that David Toombs and Lisa LaRue, um, who you're doing a kind of, in a way, a joint project mm. with, in addition to your own project. So maybe you could say a bit more about what the three of you are working on, okay. unless it's confidential yeah. at this no, point. No, <laughs> No, so we have um, written a joint article on, um, which we call at this stage, but the title might still change, but a feminist response to um, sexual violence against men and boys. Because the emphasis is so much on women and we know that um, they are in the majority and so on. But um, I think the case of men and boys who get sexually violated, um, first of all, just it's just a, s a question of justice that we need to do justice to it as we, we, we would do to any other victims of sexual violence. But then also, how do you integrate that into a feminist understanding of what sexual violence does, what it means, what it, how it functions? Because you want to hang on to the idea that it springs from gender inequality. <coughs> um, and then so I think some people think, but now if we acknowledge male victims, that's going to upset our analytic frame. So we've been trying to say how it doesn't and how to sh to to. Um, acknowledge and recognize male victims actually contributes to a feminist understanding because it shows that the lie of sexual violence, which is that some people, the perpetrators, or <coughs> which are mostly men, um, are sexually invulnerable and other people are sexually vulnerable in a sort of essentialist, naturalized way. Um, but the moment that you give visibility to male victims and female perpetrators, you upset that 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 idea that that um, sexual vulnerability is something natural, and you start to show how it's political and how people are positioned as vulnerable through through um, social systems and, and distributions of power and so on. So, so that's what we've worked on in our joint article. Um, David brought in, brought in the example of political detainees in Sri Lanka to show how men and women victims had very similar experiences and how strongly politically motivated the violence is. And um, Lisa problematized the issue from the perspective of um, humanitarian, de humanitarian and developmental work to say that there's a lot of <coughs> um, tension in that world around funding. Should we give priority to male victims? Should we give priority to female victims? Should we give priority to working, doing preventative programs with male perpetrators? Or where exactly should the money go? in addressing sexual violence. And for some people, it becomes a very emotive thing. And that, you know, um, 
they want to hierarchize victims and say, but it's worse for men, or they want to say <coughs> it's more violent when it happens to um, people with alternative sexualities, or they want to say, but more women are affected. And so in that way, they want to make a hierarchy of victims in order to answer the question of where should the money go. But we think it's you shouldn't do that. You should treat all victims of sexual violence um, equally. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so that's that. And then we also have a book project that we are in the process of <coughs> writing up. And that's basically an extension of what's happened in the article. So we want to look at, get some more collaborators on board and look at all the different questions that flow out of the focus, if you, if you focus men and boys as victims of sexual violence, where does that take you in terms of feminist analysis? Well, it's a very challenging topic you've taken on, and I, I would like to say I, I, I admire it because it seems like it takes a lot of courage to, to work in that area. So thanks for talking to me and for being part of this uh, CTI program. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. thanks. To learn more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.